Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a king, laid down in grief, but I walk with the key to hell on that day, the firstborn of the slain, the man Jesus Christ laid. Welcome to Epiphany's Sunday Sermons, a podcast ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. To learn more about our church, visit our website at epiphanyligonier.org. Local Ligonier hero R.C. Sproul tells a story about the kingdom of God, and it's one that gives me goosebumps. And he tells a story that in 1990, he was asked to do a lecture in Eastern Europe in Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Romania. And all three countries were coming out of the influence of the Soviet Union at the tail end of the Cold War. And when R.C. Sproul made his way toward Romania from Hungary, he was warned in advance by the Hungarians that the border crossing may be a little rough. Um, There was no love for Americans by the guards in Romania, and R.C. Sproul and his team should expect to be harassed, maybe even arrested when they went to cross the border. And sure enough, when the train arrived at the border, the Romanian guards were rude and brusque and demanding. They didn't speak English, but they made their intent very clear. Passports and luggage. Get down your luggage. They intended to search through their bags, perhaps to find a reason to detain the rest of the team during their trip. Uh, The Soviet satellites, even after the Cold War, did not take kindly to missionaries. And R.C. Sproul writes about what happens next. I'm going to read what he wrote. Then suddenly their boss appeared, a burly officer who spoke some broken English. He noticed that one of the women in our group had a paper bag in her lap, and there was something peeking out of it. The officer said, What this? What in bag? Then he opened the bag and pulled out a Bible. I thought, "Uh Uh-oh, now we're in trouble. The officer began leafing through the Bible, looking over the pages very rapidly. Then he stopped and looked at me. I was holding my American passport, and he said, You know American. And then he looked at Vesta, his, his R.C.'s wife, and said, You know American. And he said the same thing to the others in our group. But then he smiled and said, I am not Romanian. By now we were quite confused But he pointed at the text, gave it to me, and said, Read what it says. And I looked at it, and it said, Our citizenship is in in heaven, Philippians 3.20. The guard was a Christian. And he turned to his subordinates and said, Let these people alone. They're okay. They're Christians. As you can imagine, I said, Thank you, Lord. This man understood something about the kingdom of God, that our first place of citizenship is, is in the kingdom of God. Our reading today, if you didn't know it, it comes to us from the end of the book of Acts. We've gone through a number of sermons preached in this series, and we're going to conclude next week with a summary of what we studied. So next week, we're going to kind of wrap it all up. But uh, in our reading today, we're at the end of the book of Acts, and I want to speak about something that Paul speaks about, which is the kingdom of God. 
I can't navigate this concept with you fully today, of course. Uh, in preparation, I went through the Gospel of Matthew and looked at how many different teachings Matthew records Jesus uh, having about the kingdom of God and his gospel. And the answer is 35. That's 35 different things that I identified. There's probably more that I missed. 35 different things in Matthew's gospel alone where Jesus talks about the kingdom. Uh, but the, the Bible often uses different language to speak about the same concepts because different audiences understand it in different ways. And so we hear language like the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven and the good news and the gospel. And if you're not used to this kind of Christian language, it can make your head spin. And so I want to spend some time today talking about the kingdom of God and how it fits in with our greater themes in the book of Acts. And so as we get to the end of the book of Acts here, we find that Paul has arrived in the great ancient metropolis of Rome. Uh, Paul had been in legal limbo, legal limbo in the town of Caesarea for some time before we get to Acts 28 today. The Jews of Jerusalem uh, and the regional Roman governors uh, had Paul kept as a political prisoner um, for two years. They were treating him as kind of a bargaining chip. And seeing that he was a political prisoner uh, to the local judges and kings and to the Jews, Paul uh, goes through and executes an ancient legal maneuver. Because Paul is a Roman citizen and any Roman citizen can have his um, his case heard before the emperor personally in Rome. And so after his imprisonment for two years in the town of Caesarea for a crime he didn't commit, Paul uh, claims uh, his trial in Rome. And so Paul is escorted as a prisoner across the Mediterranean to Rome for a trial. This is not an easy journey. The trip itself takes nearly nine months to a year. There are shipwrecks. There are snake bites of the venomous variety, uh, a miraculous healing along the way. Lots of things happen between leaving Caesarea and arriving in Rome, but uh, it takes like nine months to a year to get there, and Paul arrives in Rome nonetheless. And the text ends by telling us he stayed for another you know, two years. So this whole Paul being arrested under false charges thing that we started talking about a few weeks back, it really is a mess. It's taken Paul five or six years of his life to deal with this matter. But Paul arrives in Rome for the first time in the whole of the Bible, and he does so under house arrest. He has a room. Uh, he can stay in the house. Uh, he's free to do some things, but not free to do everything. And within three days of getting settled in, Paul calls the synagogue leaders nearby and says, Hey, synagogue leaders, did anyone in Jerusalem tell you I was coming or to avoid me? Or did they say anything bad about me? And these synagogue leaders say, no. <laughs> and Paul says, all righty. Oh boy, do I have some news for you. And the local synagogue leaders say, hey, we've heard about Christianity. And, and everything we've heard is negative about it. But let's, let's, let's hear you out. We want to give you a fair shake here to understand what everything's about. And so they gather a large group of people. They meet in Paul's house because Paul is under house arrest. And here's what the text says. From morning till evening, Paul expounded to them, testifying to the kingdom of God and trying to convince them about Jesus from both the law of Pro Moses and the prophets. And again, this idea of the kingdom of God, right? This is language that comes up sometimes in the book of Acts, but it's more common in Jesus' teaching in the Gospels. Um, this is a core motif, a core uh, theological understanding. It's a core part of what Jesus and John the Baptist talk about, but it doesn't so much come up big, not quite nearly as often as uh, in Paul's writings. So what exactly does the Bible mean by the kingdom of God? 
Well, let me tell you first off what the kingdom of God is not. So, so I'm going to tell you what it is by telling you first what is it, what it isn't. I'm going to start with the negative. First is the kingdom of God is not the same thing as just the universe or the world or the cosmos, <laughs> right? We might be tempted to think that everything that God made is the kingdom of God because God made it all. But back at the Bible's beginning, when we go back to Genesis 3 with the forbidden fruit, we find that the cosmos that God created is an active rebellion against its creator. God may have made the world, but there are plenty of forces working against him. And in the great turf war for the universe, it would seem as if God's enemies are doing a really good job. Um, they're actually keeping God and, and holding him at bay. Uh, in the Bible, Satan, right, the devil, is called uh, something like the prince of the air, meaning that he is someone who is in control of things below the heavenly spheres. And he, Satan is also called the god of this world in the Bible, which means that things as we know them are not in a right way. According to the Bible, right, there are three great powers that are running things on the earth, a, a triumvirate of tragedy, as it were. Um, the, the scripture says that there are three powers at play working against what God is up to that rule the earthly spheres. The first is our own inner selfish desires. The second is our capacity to get together and do harm in great numbers. And a third are the spiritual forces um, that are aligned against God's outcomes. So maybe you would understand it to be the Bible says that the great enemies of God in the world are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Um, that's another piece of that language, right? They are in charge of the world we know. So this world, as we know it, is not the kingdom of God. So that's the first thing. The kingdom of God is not just this world as it is. Mountains are very pretty. Mountains in and of themselves, not the kingdom of God. God may have made them, but there is a turf war. And right now, God does not have the, the, the authority or the final authority over them. Uh, same thing with, you know, really pretty beaches, right? That's that's not the kingdom of God right now. It could be, but there is an insurrection, a rebellion occupying the beach, uh, making it so um, that that's not the kingdom of God. The second thing that the kingdom of God is not, the kingdom of God is not a nation state or a political entity. Um, some people have suggested that Israel is the kingdom of God. And, and there's something to that, right? There is Old Testament chosen people, uh, but there's, there's more to it than that because Jesus, right? He's in Israel. Jesus will teach that the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it's not here yet. And even then, if you read through Ezekiel, you'll see that even though God chose Israel to be his people, um, that in 586 BC, um, God's spirit ceased to dwell in their midst when Jerusalem was sacked. So yes, Israel does have a special relationship with God, but it's not the kingdom of God as the New Testament understands it. And even the prophets of old understood this too. They said, we're looking for something better than Israel. We want the kingdom of God. We want God to be king and come back and rule everything now. Uh, and frankly, you know, what, what we have currently is not cutting the mustard. Um, some people have suggested, for example, um, that America is the kingdom of God. They would be wrong. You know, Israel had their relationship with God in writing, right? God gave them tablets on a mountaintop and says, here are the rules of our arrangement. We have no such thing in the United States. Um, the case might be made that we are a nation founded by Christians, or you could talk about the United Kingdom, for example, being an explicitly Christian nation with a state religion and everything. But that's not what we're talking about when we talk about the kingdom of God. 
So, so kingdom of God, um, it's not the world as we understand it. The kingdom of God is not a nation state. And, and I think more broadly speaking, the kingdom of God, this is the third thing, the thing, kingdom of God is not of this world. Jesus says so himself, a meaning it has a broader spiritual purpose. Its purposes transcend the realm of the political as we know it. When we think kingdom, we think government, we think state, we think rulers, we think hierarchy, we think taxes, we think armies, we think social services, we think, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but, but the kingdom of God is something completely different than that. And even in our own time, people talk like to talk about social programs or charity fundraisers or benevolent political activity as saying we're going to advance the kingdom or build the kingdom using those things. And those things are not bad. They are good. Don't hear me wrong. But when Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven, his vision goes beyond earthly goals. Uh, that the kingdom of God is something more cosmic and and spiritual and transcendent in nature. It's not a political style of kingdom. So those are three things the kingdom is not. So what is exactly the kingdom? Well, it goes back to the cosmology of the Bible that we just discussed, right? God's enemies uh, from Genesis 3 and, and, and some other things that have happened in the history of the world, God's enemies have a temporary stranglehold on the cosmos as we know it. God's divine purposes are not active and operating uh, in, a, in, in a global way. Um, it is not love that is moving the sun and stars and moon right now, uh, to quote Dante. Um, other forces are in charge. God wants love and life and peace and serenity for all of his creation. We do not have love and life and peace and serenity. We have suffering and death and chaos and violence. The people of Israel understood this, right? They said there's something wrong and broken with the universe and we need God to come back and fix it. And when Jesus comes along and preaches about the kingdom, he says the kingdom of God is at hand, meaning it's almost here any moment. It's, it's coming. Get ready. And then what happens? Jesus dies and rises from the dead. The Holy Spirit descends on all the Christians. And all of a sudden, little communities of people begin to, to incite an insurrection against the enemies of God. Filled with the Holy Spirit, um, these Christians start to flip the script and they begin to rebel against the rebellion. They start an insurrection against the insurrection of the enemies of God. And, and for the first time uh, since the fall of man, we have um, the purposes of God being brought forward uh, through this community of Christians, uh, jars of clay, says St. Paul. Um, this group of Christians begin to embody God's will and change the world, uh, both cosmically and politically and tangibly as a result. I've used this illustration before, but it bears repeating. Jesus' death and resurrection, friends, is this great D-Day-like invasion of the kingdom of God into our rebellious world, right? You remember the Second World War, right? Once the Allied forces and the armies had a, a foothold on the beaches of Normandy and France, everyone knew that the war was, was basically over. Everyone knew that the Axis powers in Europe were finished. It was only a matter of time. In the same way, Jesus' death and resurrection spells out, uh, it spells the end of God's enemies and their stranglehold on the cosmos. For the first time in history, a bunch of God's enemies begin to defect, uh, right? The, that people begin to believe in Jesus' death and resurrection. They repent, they, for, they, they have their sins forgiven, and they eagerly await the day when the great war is over. 
the, the kingdom of God, friends, as the New Testament describes it, is the work of God to invade this broken world with tiny slices of heaven. Wherever God's people come together under God's rule and do God's will, that's where the kingdom of God manifests itself. The kingdom of God is not a nation state. It's not a political movement. The kingdom of God is what we're doing here today, this Sunday, Sunday, whether we're listening online or in church, what are we doing? We're proclaiming the resurrection of the dead and the forgiveness of sins and the coming return of Jesus. Instead of guns, we have prayers. Instead of war, we have self-sacrifice. Instead of violence, we demand reconciliation. Instead of rejection, we use forgiveness. Instead of giving ourselves over to our fleshy desires, we exercise self-control. We embrace together a countercultural way of life that looks a lot like God's original designs for the world. Love and life and serenity and peace. We may not do it perfectly, but we're certainly doing it better and differently than the generations past that had no connection with God or the Holy Spirit. And, and what this does, friends, is it puts us at odds with the rest of the cosmos. We are citizens of a new spiritual kingdom with different rules and different customs that the rest of the world, frankly, doesn't care for. And so given the greater context of Acts, when Paul sets down to speak with his Roman friends from the synagogue about the kingdom of God, Paul is speaking about the exact same things that have been spoken of in every passage we've read so far. He's speaking to them about Jesus' death and resurrection. He's telling them that Jesus is coming to fix the world. He's inviting them to repent. And he's using the Old Testament to reason with them about it, right? The law and the prophets. And what happens in our reading? Some believe, some do not. Paul gets a little heated about it, maybe, and, and kind of reads a word of condemnation about them being blockheads. But the point remains the same. The kingdom of God language in the Bible is essentially the same pattern and thread that we've talked about as the gospel through the book of Acts. God is going to fix the world that has been taken over by malevolent forces. Jesus is going to do it because he died and rose again. So everyone with an earshot, repent and defect, and God is going to welcome you to his eventually victorious side of this great cosmic war between God and his enemies. Paul uses kingdom language elsewhere in his writings too, right? It's not just here. Paul doesn't talk about the kingdom of God very often, but he uses government language to talk about what it means to be a Christian. He calls Christians ambassadors of this kingdom, right? Advocating not for our own desires, but for the desires of the king. That's what ambassadors do. And Paul says we're to be like good soldiers following our leader's commands, Ignoring the civil strife around us and, and obeying only the one who is our leader. That's what good soldiers do. Paul also uses, as, as um, the guard on R.C. Sproul's train knew, he uses citizen language to talk about it. You and I are first and foremost citizens of God's kingdom. You know, you not American, me not Romanian, as the guard had said, that there's something that transcends our national political boundary identity, right? You are more than your passport. You are more than your driver's license. There is ultimately something about you that transcends all of those things. And there's so much depth and richness we could discuss here. We could spend years talking about it. I don't have time to talk about it today. Um, but to be a citizen in God's kingdom is good news. Martin Luther had a kingdom story that he used to describe what it meant to be like in God's kingdom, right? It's one of his most well-known sermon illustrations. It's one of my favorites as well. 
right? Because it bridges together. It helps illustrate the kingdom language and the love of God language and the gospel language. It's all interconnected together. Because when Jesus returns, the Bible likens it to a prince getting married. That's kingdom language, right? Right? Princes, royal weddings, kings, kingdoms, it's all there. When the prince returns, he shall marry his betrothed. Uh, Luther imagined what life in the kingdom would look like when the prince, who is Jesus, marries his church, us. It's not very flattering for you and me, but it helps me understand what life in the kingdom is like. Here's what Luther said this is like. Who can even begin to appreciate this royal marriage? What can comprehend the riches of his glorious grace? Here, this rich, upstanding bridegroom, Christ, marries this poor, disloyal little prostitute, redeems her from all her evil, and adorns her with all his goodness. For now, it is impossible for her sins to destroy her, because they have been laid upon Christ and devoured by him. In Christ, her bridegroom, she has her righteousness, which she can enjoy as her very own property. And with confidence, she can set this righteousness over against all of her sins and in an opposition to death and hell and say, sure, I have sinned, but my Christ in whom I trust has not sinned. All that is his is mine and all that is mine is his. As it says in the Song of Solomon, I am my beloved and he is mine. So that's what Luther understood this kingdom language to mean. Um, that it, it isn't just sort of abstract realities about political forces and cosmic forces, but it even gets into the nitty-gritty of, of being gifted the righteousness of our bridegroom, which we then can put against the accusatory forces of the world and say, nah, not today. Um, because, well, you know, um, we are simultaneously soldiers and citizens and ambassadors and heirs and sons and daughters and princesses of a kingdom that is not of this world. In fact, the only thing we aren't in the kingdom of heaven is probably, you know, the king, right? That's not for us to be. Someone else is the king. And yet Paul has taken advantage of his Roman citizenship to appeal to an earthly ruler. And we likewise have a standing in our own citizenship, in our own spiritual kingdom to appeal to our father in heaven. So whenever you read the Bible's language about a kingdom, it's no different than what we've been talking about throughout the book of Acts. Everyone who believes in Christ, uh, who believes that uh, Christ has died and risen again, everyone who has repented of their sins and eagerly awaits Jesus' return, put them all in a room together. And then you have the kingdom of God at work. Love, life, serenity, peace, all those things will flourish. And of course, these are all gifts from God, not things we strive for and earn, but things that are gifted by God's good grace. And the goodness that comes out of a group like this will be, for all intents and purposes, an insurrection against the enemies of God, of the world, the flesh, and the devil. Everything that is aligned against the will of God in this world shudders and quakes against what this little insurrection can accomplish if it's allowed to flourish. Remember, the, the gates of hell will not prevail over this church that we are building, for this is truly a kingdom matter. And so, friends, um, I tell you in the words of Jesus, cheer up, little flock. The beaches have been stormed. The war is over. It's just a matter of time for when the prince, our fiancé, returns. Your groom is nearly here. Our wedding day is approaching. So keep up the good fight. Stay the good course. You know, shave your legs and put on lipstick. Our wait will one day come to an end. Jesus said himself, 
it is your Father's good will to give you this kingdom. And as the Easter hymn reminds us, the powers of death have done their worst, but Christ their legions hath dispersed. Let shouts of holy joy outburst. Alleluia. Amen. On Friday a thief, on Sunday a Pennsylvania.